There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Thursday morning, the 8th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. We are getting older as a country. It's official and that's no bad thing. And while many would agree it's a lot better than the alternative, ageing comes with its own challenges. In 2011, the number of people over the age of 65 who were living on their own in this country was just over 135,000 a decade on and that figure has grown by 20,000 or just over 155,000 people. In 2011 just over 19,000 people over the age of 85 lived alone. Today that number has increased by more than 10,000 to over 30,000 people. Responding to those increases recorded in the latest census Celine Clark, Head of Advocacy and Communications with Age Action Ireland told the Irish examiner yesterday that with so many people living at home into their 80s, 90s and older still we need to plan our communities and how people of all ages live in them. Celine Clark is on the line. A very good morning to you Celine and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. The increases in the population in those age cohorts is pretty staggering over a decade isn't it? Well, um, good morning, Michael, and thank you for having Age Action on this morning. I think what the figures show is what um, we understood would happen because more of us are ageing healthier and longer lives. So we will see more people uh, coming into their 80s and their 90s and 100s in uh, successive CSO status um, statistics. So it's really welcome that the CSO has introduced these figures and released these figures now and that we're getting a really good insight into the different decades Mm. um, and we can understand how people are ageing because in Age Action we're really concerned that all of us in Ireland, our societies, communities, households and government reframe how we think, feel and act towards ageing and older persons because there are uh, over 1 million people um, age 60 or over in Ireland today that will increase um, as we grow older and healthier and so we really have to plan for this ageing population the the, the ageing population in and of itself is not the challenge the challenge is if we don't plan then the individual and the group of older people experience the challenges because they don't have enough resources so we can see um, here now in the 
the CSO figures that there are many more people over the age of 80 who are living alone. Yeah. They're also living in the community and there tends to be a stereotype that we go into nursing homes um, when we're, you know, over 80 or so, but that's not the case. The majority of people are living at home independently and we can have more people living at home through choice if they can get better access to home care, for example. So okay. that's part of the planning process to make sure that we have the sort the staff uh, to provide the care and the people have the access to the care. Uh, transport is another big issue um, for those of us that are ageing in rural mm. areas in particular. Um, so <clears throat> you can see there the, the number of people who are already living alone, they'll be mostly women. And um, surprisingly, uh, for some maybe, um, 70% of older persons without a driving licence are women. Yep. So more than half of all women aged 75 or older don't have a driving licence. So they are depending on uh, public transport or somebody else to, to get them around, to get in, to get the pension, to get the shopping and to get out and about and meet people and maintain their independence. Mm. So it's really important, therefore, that we plan our rural transport infrastructure. Um, around that probably will change. That probably will change uh, over the years. I mean, a lot of women in their 50s, let's say, are, are driving now and so on. But when we talk about planning for the future, is there much work to be done? As things stand today, Celine, is this a good country to grow older in? I think it could be a better country to grow older in um, for many. Lots of people have different experiences of being an older age. Um, and that's the fact that we're not an homogenous group in any age. So we have different types of lives that we've lived. We live in different types of homes. We have different types of incomes. And we have a different health statuses. So all of that needs to be taken into consideration. Would France be a better country to grow older in? And I I ask you that uh, because of the strikes that are are taking place, uh, which I think has a lot of people bewildered and envious in uh, this country. A lot of people who are 65 or older who are working in in this country uh, who are looking at the French going on strike uh, because they don't want the pension age uh, to go up to 64. Well, now, to be fair, Ireland, um, in the last general election, we voted and we made sure that the state pension kept at 66. So um, a campaign, Stop 67, that Age Action was involved in, with SIP2 and others, um, managed to keep the pension age at 66. So we, But we do need some changes and definitely pension reform because the state pension isn't adequate at the moment and we will be coming out now in our pre-budget um work to make sure that there's a sufficient increase in the state pension to help Mm. people cope with the cost of living. But what France does and where Ireland doesn't is they benchmark the state pension and they index it. So the politics is taken out of it. And so every year people will get an increase um, in the state pension relative to the increase in the rate of average earnings or the the rate of inflation, whichever is greater. So Mm. that makes sure then that people have adequacy, but also more importantly, security. So you're not waiting for the minister on budget day yeah. to tell you what you're going to get. And it doesn't matter the most right-wing government or the most left-wing government or whatever label you put on the government of the day, they won't be deciding the pension rate. It's decided by law as it's indexed in the way that you say. You mentioned uh, that there is a misconception that a, a lot of older people over 80 in particular are being cared for in nursing homes. Uh, you told the examiner yesterday that there's another misconception uh, that if they're not in nursing homes, uh, that their children are looking after them. 
Yeah, so that's really interesting. In Age Action's report, Reframing Aging, um, the State of Aging in Ireland 2022, last year we published it. It's on our website if someone wants to read it. But um, we uh, realised that contrary to the stereotype that every older person has adult children, one in six women aged 65 plus never had children. And among them, one in five women aged 80 plus did not have children. And so there tends to be a sort of a default position that people have children who can mind them or support them, you know, whether it's with digital skills, digital banking, buying a ticket to a GA game, whatever it is. Mm. But what we realise is not everybody has children, um, but also not everybody wants to rely on their children and definitely not everybody should have to rely on the children. So we should have policies and uh, provisions by the state to make sure that people can maintain their independence and live with dignity with older age and not be forced to rely on others. And of course now with the changing nature of where we live and how we work, more of us don't live next to our, our parents or in the same town, county and country as our parents. So we don't have that sort of historic or traditional way of you know living all together and sort of supporting intergenerational families throughout the, the life course. And we can see that even with childcare you know, mm. that can be a struggle for young families as well, where they don't have grandparents easily accessible. So it works on both ends of the life course there. Um, the, so we have to get away from that notion that uh, family will support or should support all of us throughout the life course, because that's not necessarily going to happen. And you mentioned uh, the number of women without a driving licence uh, over the age of uh, 70 at the moment, or 75, uh, I think it is. And we're talking about... Uh, figures that relate to people living on their own but uh, I take it uh, it's probably true to say that women are living longer than men in this country. It's certainly true of uh, the number of women. There's far more women living on their own than men. Over 65 74,000 men, over 115,000 women over 85 uh, close to 9,000 men, over 21,000 women uh, and most of those women uh, aren't able to drive. Uh, I suppose that in itself uh, is curious, if nothing else, uh, but uh, it is something that needs to be looked at, I take. Yeah, no, definitely, because the majority of people um, age 60 plus were married uh, or are married. So what we see there is a number of women maybe who dependent on their, their spouse, you know, to do the transport in the household, which would have been normal, you know, in decades previously. And now we're, they're seeing the impact of that now. But also the fact that um, the people will suffer bereavement. And during COVID-19, this particular age group over 80 um, were impacted by the most deaths. So we will have seen a lot of people um, lose their spouse or a partner in the last couple of years. And that, apart from the the great sadness and grief that that causes people, it also leaves them trying to run a home on their own and they have the same cost. You still have to pay the same bin charges, Mm -hmm. water charges, um, rent or whatever if you're still renting. Uh, And that's a real struggle for people. So in in the budget process, we always argue for an increase in the Living Alone Alliance because we can really find those households are plunged into very difficult financial circumstances very quickly. And downsizing is a contentious issue. I take it it's wrong to ask people to move out of the house that they've called their home for 60 years quite possibly, but should people have the option to do that if they wish to? 
people wish to, absolutely. So our housing is is not necessarily built with the idea of a life course approach, you know, and particularly in rural areas where there's one-off housing and there isn't the opportunity um, uh, to move into um, possibly a more suitable accommodation within the same community. And of course, when we're older, we want to age in place. We want to age in the home or in the community in which we've built our lives. The whole support infrastructure to encourage us to be active, engaged social citizens is within our community and within our family. So most people will not want to leave their home if they have to leave their community. So when we're planning for um, our our families and our ageing population in a housing context, we have to think about options to right-size our home for those that want to. And definitely Mm. some people do, but they shouldn't um, be made to and definitely... Um, as you rightly said here, that um, this is about an individual's choice, not about a pressure, um, you know, that they're under-occupying a home and it will be suitable mm. for a family, okay. which is a really bad narrative to have. Okay. And what about technology? Um, I see, there's a, a lot of upset uh, that if you get a, a train now, you can't buy a cup of tea with a five euro note or whatever you have in your purse uh, that you're asked uh, to pay with a card. Mm. Yeah, so we can see, we know that older age is the biggest indicator for who is digitally excluded, meaning people who are not online or don't have the digital skills to conduct financial business online. So they don't digitally bank. So they, they depend on cash. So the majority of people over the age of 75 work in cash. They manage their budget. They go to the ATM, they mm. take out cash and they use it. They're not tapping, um, as in paying by their card. Uh, and so we can see where there's a bit of a push to take cash out of the economy. It really disproportionately impacts on those older people. And what it does is erodes their independence, but it also opens us up into a situation potentially for financial elder abuse where these people now are relying on somebody else to help them with their digital mm. banking or hand over their details to somebody else. Um, and that that is um, a very serious issue. And or they're being ripped off with their bills as well. Be, will be, yeah, yeah, because exactly, the, yeah. the, the loyalty is penalised and the result of that is because you can't switch providers, older people are discriminated against. Absolutely. We have many people call us to feel, say that they feel discriminated against because they can't do something online, shop around to get a better rate or avail of the discounts that we get when we're, we're doing things online as well. That can be car insurance, it can be health insurance, it can be anything. Um, and Or doing your shopping even as well mm. online. Sometimes you can get better deals. Um, and so there's a group there that are at a serious risk and in age action we advocate for digital first should not mean digital only, that there should be the adequate and equal outcome for people who are doing their business offline. And definitely we shouldn't see public services operating a digital first model and offering no provision for offline um, or non-digital or cash. Okay, I think a lot of people will agree with that, Celine. Thank you for joining us this morning. That's uh, Celine Clark, Head of Advocacy and Communications with Age Action Ireland. Michael at lmfm.ie the Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. 
Hi, I'm at the... Of, uh, the challenges of ageing. Deirdre says, I'm almost 60. I got two new hips in Navin. I'm in great form, hoping to see 100 years of age. Good luck to you, Deirdre. I hope you do. Uh, John Conlon in Ballymacanny says, I'm 55 years of age and the only cards... I do our birthday cards and Christmas cards. I wouldn't have a clue how to use a credit card. Thank you indeed, John. Our telephone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, the talk and uh, the debate in the run-up to October's budget is long underway with the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council giving its advice to government this week. And as you're aware at this stage, the advice is being prudent or risk repeating the mistakes of the early 2000s. Don't use temporary revenues from corporation tax to finance permanent expansions. Stick to the 5% national spending rule or risk overheating the economy. Let's speak to Sinn Féin spokesperson on finance, Piers Doherty, who's on the line. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Is IFAC right? Look, I, if I have um, published the, their their latest report, and you know they come before the finance committee, and they have been doing so for many years now since their establishment. And the one thing is, for policymakers like yourselves, they provide a wealth of information and, and, and analysis in relation to what has happened in the economy. Where they steer very clear off is actually the type of political choices that you should make. Um, because that's not their role and they, they don't want to step into that kind of political role. So they're just looking at the kind of fiscal parameters. But what they, what they very clearly are echoing today in their report, and they've been saying this for quite some time, is that when we're looking at budget uh, 2024, that we have to be careful in relation to the choices that we make. And I agree with that. Uh, it's, it, it echoes similar what the central bank has said uh, recently in relation to you know, that there is scope for targeted and tailored measures to support people in terms of the cost of living crisis. Uh, indeed, IFAC point out, for example, that in housing, even with the government's plan on housing right out to 2030, we will still be um, below the, well below other European countries in relation to the number of houses we have per head of population. So it, it, it's, it's a graph that tells you that the government plan is failing. But they can make the point, Michael, that if you're going to do this, then that means you can't do something else. Mm. Uh, and, and I agree with that. And that's why we've rightly called out, uh, you know, that kind of kite that they, the government flew, well, Fine Gael flew with the three ministers going out saying we should cut taxes for that those 20% that are most wealthiest in society cost 1.5 billion euro. That isn't the type of proposal that we are looking at at all because those resources need to be targeted at middle income and low income families uh, not those that are the, the best healed. The well, uh, instead of spending one and a half billion on cutting taxes, would Sinn Féin spend one and a half billion on, crease, on increasing welfare rates by 20 euro a week? No, well, for, first of all we believe that the welfare rates should have kept in line with inflation last year uh, and therefore it should do the same this year. So uh, last year you would have needed to be somewhere around 70 uh, euro 50 to keep in line with inflation this year inflation is projected to be well this year inflation sorry is 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 based on is a lot less and next year's inflation which you're trying to provide for in next year's budget is going to be actually a lot less again so you may not need to be looking at anywhere near the 20 euro mark michael but you will be probably looking at somewhere in the region of uh, at least 10 euro in terms of social welfare payments and that's probably just giving you an, an example and of that where, seems where what, to, be. to be what the government is flagging anyway. 
Well, you, the government aren't flagging that. What the government are doing is, you know, individual members are raising lots and lots of kites in relation to this mm, year. The Minister for Social what, Protection, Heather Humphreys, has said as much, hasn't she? Well, with, mm. you know, I think she, you know, we have to see the detail of it. And what you need to look at is in terms of social welfare rates. You, it, everybody is not the same across the board. So you have to look at the research that's there. There are categories of people that are that are a higher risk of falling into poverty. Mm. So, for example, Michael, there is an additional cost in terms of disability. And that's why we've always said that, you know, if you are, just for argument's sake, increasing social welfare rates and pension rates by 10 euro, then you need to increase it further for, for those with disabilities. You need to actually have additional support for those for lone parents because all the research tells you that they're the categories that fall uh, that, that are most at risk in terms of poverty and that's does, the job of us. If you do that though does it leave much over? I mean despite the fact that there's a 10 billion euro surplus this year 65 billion over the next three years uh, IFAC is saying that to stand still next year will cost 5.6 billion euro. That's what inflation has done I suppose. Yeah, and look, this is this is this is where the Department of Finance's figures and IFAX figures are are at odds. Uh, so IFAX are saying that the Department of Finance are underestimating the cost of standing still, and standing still, you know, can 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 be looked at for a number of reasons. It's a, it's so in some cases, it's interpreted as well. How much do you need to increase social welfare rates to just you know to keep in line with inflation, attacks to keep in line with inflation, and also to provide the additional teachers because of demographics, the additional nurses, and so on and so forth, and additional cost to run our hospitals or schools mm-hmm. and public services. Uh, so there is a dispute there where we need to actually get to the to the, to the point of what is actually the real figure. Um, but there is there is scope for further expansion in relation to next year's budget. I think are absolutely 100% right. Windfall taxes that are not de- that, that we cannot depend on into the future should not be used in terms of increasing current ongoing expenditure. But, 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 but you'd build houses, for, you'd build houses, for example. IFAC says uh, that may not be possible because uh, there's full employment and construction. Well, IFAC are actually pointing out to exactly what Sinn Féin have been saying for the last number of years. What we need is we need to direct those working in construction to build houses. So IFAC point out that we have half as many people building houses today as we did during the Celtic Tiger, but we have more people today working in construction than we did during the Celtic Tiger when we were building nearly three times as many houses. So the people are there in construction, they're just not building houses. They're building you know, commercial blocks, they're building different type of activities in terms of construction. And that's why we've been arguing for a taxation measure that would increase stamp duty in terms of commercial building, not to bring in additional revenue, is trying to reorientate people into building homes because we need to deal, deal with this crisis. But next year, Michael, we're also looking at, you know, people are hearing about these surpluses and windfall taxes mm. and all the rest. Next year, the pro- projection is for 16 billion euro of, uh, of a surplus. Now, that 16 billion euro is not made up of all windfall taxes. 4 billion euro of that surplus is actually recurring expenditure. And these surpluses are calculated after we have a, a budget package of about 5 billion euro. So, like, that's after we, we spend this money to, to stand still, as you mentioned earlier, that there is still 4 billion euro of recurring permanent taxes there that that would be available to the state. So there absolutely is a need to deal with the issue of the housing crisis that has been created by this government. We need to we need to expand the amount of money that we're putting in and build more social, affordable and cost rental homes. We need to end the crisis that we have in the hospitals. It isn't going to happen overnight, but we need to start building in the capacity, building additional wards onto our hospitals, creating the additional beds, and that means additional capital spending. 
we have the resources to do it now. We have the space to do it now. Mm. And, and, and we need to start ending these crises that people, you know, have now become to accept as nearly normal. That when you go to A&E, it'll be the following day. It'll be 24 hours before you get a bed. Or, or you know, mm. if you're a young person now, you're not likely to own your home until you're at the age of 30. And that's why we see so many of them heading off to Melbourne and Sydney. And you're seeing an acceleration of that in my own community. And I'm sure it's the same in, in right across uh, okay. right across. Yeah. Okay, uh, well, we'll continue this conversation undoubtedly up until October. Can I ask you about financial fraud, though? Uh, we spoke to Charlie Weston on the programme yesterday about the front page story uh, on the Irish Independent yesterday, which was based on figures given to you by the Department of Justice. There's been a 560% jump in the number of bank accounts that have been taken over by scammers and frauders. Uh, you're looking for a a database uh, for banks and state agencies to share information about this type of fraud. Yeah, we're, look, we're looking for a number of things and we've put this um, on the political agenda now and in fairness, the Finance Committee and my colleagues there have agreed to have a whole series of hearings in relation to this. So we've had the banks in, we've had the Guardian, we've had the department and we're going to have more people in over the next number of weeks to, 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 to look at what's happening in terms of uh, financial fraud. The area where we're particularly focused on and the article that Charlie Weston had on the front page of the Independent was what's called approved push payment fraud. So they're the types of fraud where you authorise the payment, um, you know, so that it's not a case where you know somebody has your bank link details and they're they're buying something online. It's actually where you are, you know, making a payment or a transaction to somebody. It may be that you're seeing an investment opportunity uh, on online. It's maybe advertised on on a social media platform, you know, to invest five thousand euro, ten thousand euro. Some of these cases, people are investing over a hundred thousand euro to find out that there is no product behind it. There's no investment there. People in you know have 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 put their retirement lump sums, uh, which are like over a hundred thousand euro, into these investments, and it's completely fraudulent. Uh, and we've seen a two hundred and fifty eight percent increase in that. We've seen you know romance fraud. That's where somebody can, uh, um, you know. They they, they 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 make contact online. They, they they build up a relationship. Usually, that's kind of fostered over a number of months, maybe a year. Then suddenly, that person you know gets ill, doesn't have money to pay for it. The individual starts making transactions: two thousand, five thousand, ten thousand. In some cases, it's 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 multiples of that. Uh, and again, they're authorizing the payment, but they're all fraudulent. And what we've seen, Michael, is a massive increase in these type of frauds. Account takeover up five hundred and sixty. Investment frauds two hundred. 57, phishing, smishing and vishing. They're the kind of SMS text that you're getting and you're making payments through that. They're up 417%. And the, the most important thing about those type of frauds that we're talking about, the likes of accommodation frauds, where you're, you're, you think you're renting an apartment somewhere maybe in Dublin and there is no apartment, or your holiday fraud, where you're booking a holiday for your family to the Canaries, mm. you're paying out 5,000 euro, there is no holiday. So all of these are cre- increasing dramatically. And the thing about these type of frauds is you do not get your money back. If your card was tapped today and somebody went and bought a flat screen TV with it, uh, what you use in your MasterCard, you will get that money back. But these type of frauds, you get none of it back. Now, if you happen to live in Uri, you will get this money back. And yesterday, actually, the, the, the British regulator actually said that the voluntary code that exists in the North and in Britain is now going to be put on a statutory basis, which means everybody's going to get their money back. Here, we are losing tens of millions of euro through this type of fraud and we are losing the battle. So what we're looking for, 
it's not Sinn Féin is looking, we're arguing for it, but the banks themselves have been asking the government to, to allow them to have a shared fraud database, which means that when it is happening in real time, that they're able to share the information with other banks and with the Gardaí. Like, this is unbelievable. Mm. The, the, the department are refusing to allow them to, for that to happen. When I ask the department why that is, they say there's other competing priorities in relation to their time in terms of legislation. We're losing this battle. Tens of millions of euro has been taken fraudulently, robbed from people, and yet the, the department is not allowing the banks to share this information in real time to stop this type of fraud. The second thing is, we need a, a, a government strategy. Now, it was promised over two years ago, a multi-annual plan to tackle economic fraud. The British government are on their second one. They just published 100-page documents recently. We don't even have one. Two years after it was promised, we don't have it. And that's things that the department can do. There are other things that we can do as well. For example, if you're making a payment to somebody and you believe that they, you know, you're mm. maybe paying for an invoice and you, you're, you're authorising it on your bank and online, in, in Britain and in the Netherlands, you, they, the banks have to make sure that the person you're paying, if you're paying it to Johnny Doherty and you think it's, you're buying something, then the banks check that the, the account that you're sending the money to is registered under the name of Johnny Doherty. And if it's not, the payment won't go through. Again, these are things that can happen here. Mm. Simple things that will help people not be frauded in the first instance and, in the, and, and where it does happen, that they get the money back. And why is that important? That's important because the banks then are forced to step up. If the banks have to okay. pay this money back mm. to customers, then the banks step up the type of uh, investment that they're doing to tackle well, this Well, it's certainly a problem that seems to be widespread. We have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining Thanks, us uh, this morning. That's uh, Sinn Féin spokesperson on finance, Pierce Doherty. Call Michael now, 041-983-2000. Metric Prince, uh, that's how Liam Herrick, the Executive Director of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, framed uh, the debate on facial recognition technology in a letter to the Irish Times yesterday. Liam Herrick is on the line and a very good morning to you and thanks indeed for joining us. You sounded concerned uh, reading your letter yesterday uh, by the Minister Helen McEntee and returning to work as the Justice Minister and what she's been saying about facial recognition technology but you agree with the Minister on the other hand when she says that talking about this for over a year is far too long. Good morning, Michael. Yes, I suppose listeners will probably have heard quite a bit over the last couple of months uh, at the political level about the Fine Gael party wanting to introduce facial recognition technology for the, the guards, which is a form of surveillance, and the Green Party being opposed to it. Uh, and I suppose our frustration is that this is a very serious and important question. Um, you know, it's a very powerful technology that has been used in some countries uh, with very mixed results, and other countries have banned its use by law enforcement. But the key issue here is that we've got a political dispute between two parties about the question, but we don't know what is actually being proposed. And a year ago, Minister McEntee um, announced that it was her intention to bring forward proposals to have facial recognition technology for Angarda Shikona. But over a year later, nothing has been put forward. So we've got a kind of a behind-the-scenes mm. political horse trading going on about it. But the public, the members of the Oireachtas, the press, and the public have seen nothing. And, and we said this is not the right way to develop law on something that's so important. If the minister wants to propose it, by all means put forward a proposal and let everybody interrogate it. It creates the sense 
that what the government wants to do is to reach some sort of agreement between themselves and then rush through the legislation afterwards, which would be profoundly anti-democratic. You're saying don't confuse it with body-worn cameras. Facial recognition technology is something different altogether. Well, I think this is crucial because there's been a proposal in legislation for quite some time that uh, well, there's been proposal for, for a wide range of reform of our surveillance laws and we know for some time that the government wants to introduce body cameras for Angarda Shikona. That proposal is around for five years going back to the Commission of the Future Policing. Now our organisation is a bit sceptical about whether this is going to be uh, beneficial or not, but we're very open to persuasion on it. Um, but what the government has tried to suggest is that objections to facial recognition technology are slowing up the introduction of body cameras. And, and that's just simply not true. If the government wanted to have body cameras and the Garda unions wanted and so on, then th- they could be in place already because there's none of the parties in the Oireachtas are against it many people in the Oireachtas are against facial recognition technology because they know that there's a whole lot of other human rights and civil liberties concerns that arise around facial recognition technology that have nothing to do with giving the guards body cameras. So I think it's been somewhat disingenuous to try to link the two together. They could easily be separated. And in fact, many of the companies that make body cameras for police don't include facial recognition technology in it because they, they understand that they're two separate questions. I think you said uh, the biggest provider in America doesn't do it on ethical grounds and those grounds appear to be that the technology isn't quite there yet and that there have been many examples of people being wrongly accused of crimes because it's meant to recognise you. The computer is meant to recognise your face if you're pictured on a camera based on its own data but uh, it's flawed uh, and there can be poor accuracy rates for women, people of colour and ethnic minorities. That's that's certainly one significant area of concern that that there have been a lot of mistakes and errors which have led to miscarriages of justice. But there's another set of objections as well, is that even if it was performing at a higher level of accuracy, it just introduces a very powerful level of surveillance that will have a chilling effect on ordinary people going about their lives. And we'll see people less inclined to take part in political demonstrations, protests, trade union strikes and so on, because they'll be constantly under surveillance. That's why cities like San Francisco have banned facial recognition technology by law enforcement. And the European Union is currently developing a law on artificial intelligence, which is clearly going to ban most, if not all, law enforcement use of facial recognition technology. But the bottom line is that I think members of the Oireachtas, ourselves, you know, experts as computer scientists and others, you know, are up for a debate about this. We're up for having a discussion and teasing through the different ways in which it could be used. And there may be some uses that that could be acceptable and others that won't. But of course, none of us can have that discussion until the government shows its hand. Uh, And we're now almost 13 months 
since the government said it wanted to introduce this and not a word of a proposal has been issued. So when the minister is frustrated about delays, the delays aren't because people are objecting to it. The delays are because there's never even been a proposal made in the first place. Okay. And I think, you know, we, we can't have people, discuss, you know, mm. suggesting that there's some sort of political debate out there when nothing has actually been put forward for discussion. A strong message to Minister McEntee to get on with it. Liam, we leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Liam Herrick, Executive Director of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. 086 1800 658. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by Airgrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Michael now, 0419832000. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by Airgrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Uh, thanks uh, to Peter in Dundalk who says more money should be spent looking after people instead of money being wasted on people doing statistics. Thanks uh, for that, Peter. Tom wants to know what Sinn Féin would do for foster carers. Uh, a text uh, then from Betty Daly who says, Hi Michael, it's no fun getting old in this country. The way we're going, people are begrudged for having a three-bedroom house if they live in it on their own and let's face it she says not all families are willing to look after a parent especially an in-law who doesn't want to help but they're uh, very quick uh, to take their share of the sale of the parents' home when that comes uh, to its time. Thank you indeed to Betty and everybody who's been in touch. Our phone number is 0419832000 if you do want to make comment, text or WhatsApp 0861800658, email michael at lmfm.ie. A bit weird, isn't it, uh, seeing how those wild forest fires in Canada are choking New Yorkers. Certainly not the kind of uh, thing you'd hope Hope, uh, to ever have to experience uh, but uh, there is uh, some concern with the dry spell that we have here. The Department of Agriculture has this week issued an orange warning for forest fires and we're already seeing some examples of that. There's a, a large gorse fire threatening residential properties on the outskirts of Galway City. Uh, there was a very close down call uh, in uh, County Kerry uh, in the Maharee uh, when uh, a blaze destroyed three acres in a special area of conservation, a lot of damage to sand dunes, which are rich in biodiversity and a habitat for very rare wildflowers, sea holly, sea rocket, insect, butterflies, the natter jack toad. It was only for the quick thinking of a number of locals and the fire service, uh, locals coming along with mayonnaise tubs, water bowsers and buckets uh, to wet the sand dunes uh, at the edges to stop it from spreading. Uh, but we've had uh, some fires locally uh, as well and there is concern, uh, obviously going into the summer about this. Let's speak to Matthew McGreen, uh, spokesperson for Louth IFA. Good morning, Matthew. Thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, a couple of fires that you can report to us locally. Yes, Michael. Good morning. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, there was a fire, Michael. Uh, not too far from where I live, uh, looking over uh, at Warren Point. But uh, I suppose uh, 
I would be calling on on people, uh, you know, in the in the area and travelling through the area, not to light any fires this time of year, you know. Right, uh, particularly people on day trips or maybe camping over the weekend. Yeah, because uh, like I suppose, Michael, thinking back, if you we had a dry period there in February, and and there was a newspaper, a new, local newspaper article in the Argus, uh, you know, that referenced that was also made in the article that. Uh, it was three years after a fire starting the Schlieve-Nidlock mountain, which was devastating to the habitats, you know. And that fire uh, was, was uh, deemed to be started by a campfire, you know. And it is very important that people uh, visiting the area don't don't have fires at any time of year. You know, we don't mm-hmm. welcome campfires on the hills any time of year, but especially in dry weather like that, you know. And it's also important to find out or to point out Michael, that farmers in, in that area uh, that had sheep and were farming that are shareholders and owners of that mountain in Schlieven's Lock uh, got in trouble uh, with the Department of Agriculture through no fault of their own, you know, and had their payments held up and everything else uh, until they were sorted out. But it can cause, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of trouble and it's, it's no good born in this time of year, you know, mm. uh, so it's not. And I suppose... Michael, uh, we are very proud of our area and it's important to point out from our point of view that, like, you know, we've been managing these things for... Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like, what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like, what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Generations. And because of the way these areas have been managed in the past, uh, that the Cooley Mountains were eligible to be designated special areas of conservation back whenever, you know. Mm. And uh, I suppose there's a new environmental scheme now being introduced by the Department of Agriculture called uh, Acres, Acres Cooperation Measure. And uh, it's specifically uh, supposed to be targeted at the hills, you know. Uh, in the past, uh, environmental schemes were generic for for hill and lowland, but now there's a specific one coming in and we hope to that it'll tackle some some areas that do need uh, attention, you know. I suppose the best way to manage vegetation on the hills is, is grazing with sheep at a sustainable stocking level, you know, not to overgraze, not to undergraze. Okay. 
it is allowable to burn gorse, uh, but uh, not from March onwards. Yeah, and sometimes burning gorse, Michael, it's it's no it's no real advantage either. It can help to clear an area to get under control, but uh, sometimes it can the seeds uh, germinate all the quicker than it can when it comes back. You know, so I suppose you know, depending on the area, uh, sometimes. Sometimes it is it is good for the area to be born and controlled in the right time of year, and sometimes then even it's even it is the right time of year. It's not it's not good depending on the vegetation that's there. You know, there's no real advantage. So it's site specific and that you know, mm. uh, depending on, on on where they are. You know, and but like uh, I've been there's there's an area burnt in there as I say um, as you look over by Warren Point down from Corrick, yes, and I've been talking to some of the shareholders there, and there's no way. You know, I know they didn't like it, you know, but it's right beside the road. And uh, all I can come to is that someone let it for the sheer hell of it, you know. But, uh, you know, and and drove on, you know. But uh, How much damage was done, Matthew? uh, An area was cleared. Listen, it will come back and and there's other areas beside it, but uh, if there was any wildlife or that in in the area, it wouldn't uh, wouldn't be great, you know. Mm. But... Can you put a size on the it area? Does be, it does be presumed, Michael. It yeah. does be presumed. Of course, that yeah. farmers farmers yeah. like these fires, and like it said in the Augustine uh, a couple of months ago, that you know, you know, it was believed that the the fire was lit by farmers mm. on which was the last day of control burn and was allowed. You know that that was an area above at um, mm. top of Money Cork Row Mountain, at top of uh, Jenkinson Forest. And uh, it's not even uh, it's not even owned. The area that was burnt was owned by Kielsha. and if it had to be managed properly, it was long heather on it. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it's an area that we've been calling for to be managed. But if that area had to be managed properly, uh, maybe burnt in, in in patches at different times of the year over the, a course of different years, that wouldn't have happened. Well, but it's they, only it's but, only when it goes wrong that it comes to people's attention. But exactly. it, it but it is true that farmers burn gorse, isn't it, Matthew? And that they do it at the wrong time of the year. <laughs> I think well, the I think the assumption uh, uh, across uh, Carlingford Lake from you there uh, was that big fire. Do you remember a big fire a couple of years ago in the Moran Mountains uh, that that was started yeah. by farmers? Well, it, I'm, I'm sure maybe maybe it was, you know, maybe it was, but it's presumptuous, Michael, to believe the whole time that it is started by farmers. And, and, and you know, I'd say farmers are educated a lot uh, in the last while that, you know, uh, you know, there is a right time and a wrong time of year. But now we would we would disagree with the, the burning times that there does need to be an extension of the burning times in the hills, you know. Mm. Uh, and that's the point, probably. Uh, and farmers believe that they can control the fires. It's only when it goes wrong uh, that people notice. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but it is, Michael, there's a lot of people using the hills. There's mm. a lot of people using the hills. And I will defend the farmers and the shareholders mm. that we do get blamed when it's not us, you know. Mm. You know, and... and uh, you know, uh, like but a, but you accept that. But you accept that sometimes it is farmers. I mean, it's quite obviously from people building campfires or discarding cigarettes or whatever else uh, they've done to start a, a fire at times. But you accept that at other times it's farmers intentionally and illegally starting fires. Well, I I don't accept Michael in the recent years that it was farmers that started outside the boring period. I don't from talking to them. You know, mm. I don't in recent years. I don't. 
any fires any fires that were started recently in the in the re- last recent years. I don't believe it was farmers or shareholders to start them in in the. And even Michael, but uh, at, say, that, you know at the really same time, you're saying Michael. they should be allowed uh, to do it. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but, up to when? Extension. Up to when? Well, in Pacific places, Michael, it's state Pacific, and it, it passed by ecologists or whatever. You know, the, in Pacific places, and if the weather is right and everything else, if an area can benefit from control burning ecologically, you mm. know, or biology, whatever it is, biodiversity wise, you know. Mm-hmm. You well, know, so we we would be calling for that. Uh, we don't seem to be much head making much headway in Scotland. The Ken no, Bourne, no, but know. it is it is for those reasons uh, to protect uh, the habitat uh, that uh, gorse and other things will provide. Uh, but yeah. I mean that's Sometimes why that's why the cut off date is the end of February. Uh, when should yeah. the cut off date be? Do you think? But Michael, do you see if you don't control if you don't control an area and manage an area and let an area get out of control, mm. then it's inevitable. Someone will come along. Someone will come along and strike the match. It just happens. You know what I mean? It just ha- shouldn't happen, but mm. it happens. Yeah, and, then a whole, and then a whole area burns out of control. Mm. You know, you see it everywhere in Kerry National Park in the moors. If mm. an area is not managed... But is it done intentionally? Managed, I mean, uh, what is what what is definitely inevitable is uh, that <coughs> if you start a, a fire, you destroy nests and you obliterate yeah. the next oh, generation. Definitely, yeah. definitely, 100%. It shouldn't happen. It should, that shouldn't happen, Mike. But I'm saying if an area is not managed, if an area is not managed and it's let get out of control, if the heather's let get too long... Mm. You know, you burn it in patches in different times of year. I get a flail out. Don't burn it even. Get a flail out, you know. But, uh, you know, if an area is not managed, these things will inevitably happen. Mm. And can it, can, it, can it not be managed uh, by removing it whatever way you do before March? <coughs> uh, with the fires? Yeah, well, whatever way you well, do it, whether the, you burn the weather, it or the weather, The weather doesn't always be with us, Michael. Mm. The weather doesn't always be with us. And then, Michael, there's such rigmarole. Mm. You know what I mean? So even in, we'd say we had a dry February this year, but there'd be such rigmarole to go and try and get permission to do it, you know what I mean? Uh, as well, you know, with all the agencies and, 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 you know, that they wouldn't be allowed to do it anyway. You know? So, so farmers then feel they've no option really but to take it on themselves or upon themselves uh, to do what they feel is no, right and Michael, proper. In, in, but Michael, in general here, we don't have to burn because we have a good stocking level. We have a good stocking rate and the mountains, the mountains uh, in general don't uh, don't burn that much, you know. Mm. There's a few there's a few areas, there's a few flashpoints need to be managed better than they are. But in general, uh, in general, uh, you know, uh, they don't be, uh, they don't burn that much elements in Cooley. Okay. We leave you know, that if, if they do go yeah. up, then it, there's, there's a, you know, there are certain areas that I, I would say that need to be managed better. Mm. But, uh, uh, but definitely, Michael, if areas aren't managed, you know, whether that's, whether that's uh, controlled burning in the right time of year, mm. in certain areas, I wouldn't say all areas, because mm. some vegetation doesn't benefit from burning, it only makes it worse. Mm. It can grows, back, grow, grows back twice Germany. as strong. I know, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you'd encourage people, uh, Matthew, not 
to be lighting campfires, uh, to think about uh, what they're doing, discarding cigarettes or anything else that might cause yeah. a, a fire. Yeah. And you'd encourage farmers not to be starting fires on, on the mountains over the summer months. Definitely, definitely. Okay. Thank- 100%, 100%, Michael. And I yeah. hope when this new acre scheme and environmental scheme come in, that we can really tackle some of the areas that need to be tackled, the flashpoints that occur every year, you know, and mm-hmm. whether that means moving fences to allow sheep graze at a sustainable level or whatever, you know. All right, uh, Matthew. Or, or whatever. But definitely, Michael, uh, if you don't manage an area, these things are never... And people can jump up and down all the like uh, about, you know, when they see the fires in Killarney Lash and Park and everything else. Mm. But if no effort is made, you know, it just uh, every year when these fires happen, people wonder why they happen. It's because the vegetation has loud got out of control. Okay. Well, we have to leave it there for the moment. Uh, that vegetation that has got out of control is on very dry land at the moment. Uh, and uh, I take it uh, that uh, people really need to be cognizant of that. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. That's Matthew McGreehan, spokesperson for Loud IFA. 086 658 European countries have a solitary agreement uh, which means uh, that each of uh, the European countries will accept international protection applicants. It appears that Ireland is not able to fulfil that obligation and instead is going to offer one and a half million euro to the fund so that they can be accepted in other countries. Let's speak uh, to our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, who's on the line. A very good morning to you, Sean, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, That's the argument uh, that the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, and the Minister for Integration, Rodrigo Gorman, will make to the Cabinet today. Yeah, that's right. So this is a scheme that we had entered into really prior to what we've seen in the last year, which has seen nearly 100,000 extra people added to our population, about 2% of the, the entire population of Ireland. And basically, this is was the European agreement that was hashed out when there couldn't be a wider agreement on redistributing refugees that were coming into the European Union. And particularly, they were looking at affected countries at the time, like Italy and Greece, where you had migrants crossing the Mediterranean, coming from Africa, coming from other places, and landing in Europe and that basically under the European regulations have to be dealt with by whatever country they landed in, which puts certain countries uh, at the front line of it and having to deal with a much larger number than others and you can see something similar is happening in Ukraine now with the likes of Poland and Moldova and others dealing with the the, the brunt, if you like, of the refugees coming out of that situation and as part of the agreement, Ireland had agreed to take in 350 refugees. Uh, We are now not in a position to do so is basically what the government are saying because of the uptick in Ukrainian refugees and also other international protection applicants. So under that mechanism, the deal was basically that you either agree to take a certain amount or you uh, you pay it towards this fund so that those people can be relocated elsewhere. And what the suggestion to Cabinet will be today is that we will pay uh, 1.5 million euro towards that fund instead because we do not have the accommodation for 350 extra people. Right. Um, so where will those people go? Because uh, they're fleeing from really terrible parts of the world, uh, the likes of Afghanistan, Syria or Yemen? Yeah, I don't I don't know is the short answer where they'll be relocated. Obviously, this is an issue that a lot of European countries are facing, some dealing with it better than others, but a lot of them having trouble in housing different refugees and, and housing asylum seekers. So presumably they will be relocated somewhere else within the EU. We don't know exactly where that is. Uh, 
that will be up to the, the fund to decide. But I suppose the supports will maybe be given towards some of those other countries from that 1.5 million euro that the Irish government is giving, and there may be other countries that are in a in a better position to provide more immediate accommodation. Whereas the government here has made the calculation that we were already struggling the figure of asylum seekers without accommodation or otherwise sleeping on the streets was below 100 last week, having hit highs only two weeks ago of in around the 500 figure. But if you add another 350 people in the, the immediate term on top of that, obviously things are going to struggle. You have the situation that is constantly evolving where hotel contracts are coming up for renewal. Some are being renewed and some are, are, are leaving the system. And then the massive delays we've seen for the things like modular build accommodation, which was meant to be finished, mm-hmm. these, these 700 units, or at least a significant part of these 700 units meant to be finished in November 2020. And yet we still haven't seen any significant number of those bills and put on on different lands around the country. So that there is a big headache here already for the Irish government. And essentially what they're saying is, look, we, we would like to bring these in. We did voluntarily sign up. This isn't something that's mandated by the EU. It is a, one that the government voluntarily signed up to a number of years ago, but we're just not in a position to fulfil it at the moment. Right. Uh, but... Do they have this buyout clause? Uh, it, it sounds like carbon credits. If you can't reduce your emissions, you can pay uh, so that somebody else reduces their emissions. Um, is, is it that type of an agreement? It's something similar enough, basically, except with the carbon emissions, uh, you know, it's something that's less finite, if you like, whereas with housing asylum seekers, these are 350 real people. These are people who will need protection from the situation that they, they could be leaving. We don't know what those situations are, but obviously a lot of the countries that you mentioned before that they're coming from, they are coming from dire situations. They're not leaving, uh, you know, for the crack of it. They are literally leaving for the good of their health because they were perhaps persecuted or in situations where they felt that their lives or their families' lives were in danger mm. at home. And they have to be found somewhere within the European Union where that is we don't exactly know but it still has to go somewhere and it does feed in to this overall crisis that is happening across the EU where every EU country is under different mm. levels of pressure from the war in Ukraine and from other things that are happening around the world that is, is causing this sort of mass migration mm. and that does with the pressure on every country collectively really. It will have to be asked if it's reasonable of the Irish government to do such a thing if you take it into account the pressure that there are on countries like Greece as you say if the Irish can't the Irish state can't provide housing uh, that has failed uh, to deliver on the promises of modular housing uh, and it's now talking about flotels uh, and we're what 18 months more or less on from uh, the beginning of uh, the war in Ukraine uh, which really made this problem all the worse can Greece do it uh, even if we give them uh, uh, what is it a uh, 1.5 million euro uh, can they uh, put in place the accommodation for 350 people and how long will that accommodation last for I mean is this one and a half million for a year for a month for 10 years or do we continuously have to pay into this fund it's a good question as far as I know it's a one soft payment Uh, I don't know how long that will last for how long that will provide for these 350 people or, or these families where they go into this and if you look at some of the conditions in the likes of Greece and Italy we have seen camps where conditions are, are pretty awful and where people get stuck for an awful long time because they are also struggling and they've been struggling for, for a lot longer than the Ukrainian crisis if you go back to the Syrian crisis there was obviously horrendous scenes along the Mediterranean during the, the mid-2010s when it came to that I suppose there is the option of them being redistributed to other countries and that will be put out there other countries that might have better facilities or a better uh, economic base 
to house these people if you look at somewhere like perhaps like France or perhaps like Germany mm. both have their own problems but are larger countries in the EU and there will be a lot of people listening who will be making the argument that we see it that the poll that was there at the weekend gone that you know we, we are doing enough we have taken in an awful lot of people over the last couple of years it, it, that it disproportionately affects a country like Ireland where we have a smaller population where we our urban centres aren't built up quite as much and we have a housing crisis that is, is particularly biting a lot of the countries in the EU have very similar problems mm. uh, and that is what the risk we run into, I guess, as this migration crisis continues, that every country starts to say, well, we can't take them because we have to look after all of our domestic problems. Mm. Uh, and then where do they go? And you talk about the dark conditions that people are living in and some of uh, these refugee camps, really uh, an awful situation for anybody to find themselves in. Perhaps uh, the one and a half million will pay for the 350 people to live in one of those horrible places. But it is bizarre, isn't it, given all of the empty buildings that we have in this country? Yeah, well, look, the the government response, yeah, in some ways has been intensely impressive in that we have taken in a hundred, you know, two percent of our population is a huge amount to take mm. in at any one time. There were, you know, there were census leaps of five years where our population didn't grow by that amount. Uh, and yet we have found accommodation for quite a lot of them, albeit some of the temporary. But yet at the same time, you have to look around and say there are a lot of areas, there are an awful lot of empty buildings that, that still aren't being used, as you say, a long, long time in to this particular crisis. I can't get over the idea of the modular housing issue. Just, you know, this was put there as a, as a solution. And by the way, this was put there as a solution to our own housing crisis, what, eight, ten mm. years ago nearly yeah. at this stage by the government. If this is something that could roll out very, very quickly. There's a lot of council land, there's a lot of uh, state land that just isn't being used. But even the fact that the LDA spent pretty much the first two years of existence just compiling a list of different sites around the country that could potentially be used only for that list to be totally rubbished because they were sites that already had plans for them. There were CIE sites where bus depots were planned. There were different sites where governments were planning to use them uh, for other issues and not accommodation. So the response in some aspects from the government has been incredibly, incredibly slow. uh, And that's just going to keep on being tested. To think that it could be, you know, a year later, November this year was the latest target that I've been told for the modular housing to be in place. Uh, When these things take, what, six weeks, eight weeks to actually build, Mm. uh, it's pretty crazy. Okay, uh, the doll isn't sitting this week. Uh, are we to read anything into the timing of this? Uh, and undoubtedly, when uh, the doll resumes next week, uh, there will be a lot of opposition to what uh, looks likely uh, to be a decision that the government will make today. Yeah, look, there's definitely going to be more discussion on it. And it is yet another area. A lot of the opposition parties have been saying for quite a long time that we are failing in our responsibility to international uh, protection applicants and to people who are fleeing those dire situations. It is a hot-button topic at the moment, and it is one where politicians are very careful in the statements that they are making because they're not 100% sure of the public mood. To go back to that poll that I mentioned where 75% of people told the business folks that they think Ireland is taking in too many refugees as it is uh, and yet we have these responsibilities to people who are in very very dire circumstances so it is undoubtedly going to come up I think it's probably uh, you know getting quite a bit of attention this week because it's very a very light cabinet agenda other than that there's not a huge amount of issues and quite a few ministers are away with the, the dull week that's in it but it is one that they are going to have to answer for in the, the chamber next week and look this immigration issue is something that's, that, that is not going away it is going to play right up until at least the end of this year it does doesn't look like the war in Ukraine is going anywhere anytime soon. We're obviously seeing horrendous images 
coming from there with the bursting at the dam in the last few days and this potential Ukrainian counter-offensive. So it, it is one that I think is, looks likely at this stage to, to dog the government out until the election, whatever time that is. OK, Sean, we leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. JackDoranMotors.ie 086-1800-658 The Michael Reid Show, brought to you by Airgrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Now, speaking of uh, the 10-year-old housing crisis and uh, the record number of homeless people in uh, this country, it's a problem uh, that extends uh, to ever every corner of uh, the country. Uh, Dundalk, no exception as Save Our Homeless, Dundalk will tell you. Not only do they help people uh, who are faced with emergency accommodation or homelessness, uh, last year they provided 1,750 adults and children with weekly food hampers. Finbar Markey is a Director of Services with Save Our Homelessness in Dundalk and a very good morning to you Finbar and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Tell us a little bit more about the work that you do. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to all your listeners as well. Um, and we do exactly what you said, Michael, and we try to be as flexible as possible with people's needs because they are varying. Um, and initially, Save Our Homeless started out just working with people who were homeless and rough sleepers. Uh, over the last few years, the, the, the amount of actual rough sleepers has reduced uh, on, on the streets in Dundalk, but their, their needs have not from the point of view that they're in emergency accommodation. And there's a lot, a lot of people that we would, and families that we would consider to be hidden homeless. I think the national figures are around 300,000 hidden homeless, and that's reflected in Dundalk as well. So for people who are rough sleepers or people who are on the streets, they can drop into us, we'll give them clothing, we'll let them cook food there themselves if they want to use our kitchen, we'll provide them with food. Because they're, they don't know where they're going to be on any particular night, we, we can't provide them with large amounts of anything, they can't carry it anywhere. Mm. But they can pop in on, on a on a daily basis and get as many needs met that we can help as possible. We also find that although we don't provide social services as such, we often will give advice as in refer them to other agencies that might be able to assist them as well. And quite often we'll have families and people coming in and we might spend a few hours on the phone just to try to get them a and b for the night or somewhere for the night. And quite often, unfortunately, we fail in that regard. But on top of that, as you say, and when you say when you say fail, uh, it's not without a, a lot of effort. Uh, there just isn't anywhere to go. There's just nowhere. Like sometimes, yeah. I remember a couple of weeks ago, there was one family came in, uh, uh, male and female partners, and they had children uh, out in the car, and they had money for a deposit for a house in their hand, and they had a month's rent in their hand. But they couldn't even get a B&B for the night. And we spent, on a Friday afternoon, we spent about three hours on the phone. And sadly, we, we had to watch them walk out the door without anywhere to go that night. Right. You don't know where they ended up? No, no. Okay. Uh, it, it, yeah. uh, maybe they ended up on somebody's sofa. Who knows? Mm. Uh, sometimes we have that. They'll come, they'll come in once and we may not see them again. And we always wonder where they are. Somebody's so far or sleeping in a car. These things yeah. that uh, have become normalised uh, as such. It, it, it is. There was a, mm. a family recently, and I don't want to give too many demographic details yeah. about them just for GDPR reasons, but there's a family with three kids and a single mother, and she had been sleeping in a car for a couple of months with the kids, and she finally got a house, thankfully, and we got her furniture and beds for the kids and all that for this new house. Mm. And when we moved them in, 
I've never seen such beaming smiles on kids' faces over seeing a bed being taken into a house. Well, you and I would consider it to be absolutely normal. We wouldn't think about it twice. Mm. And you could have stamped on these kids' toes. It would not have taken the smile off their face. I'm sure. And so yeah. when you, when you mm. that is happening on a daily basis. I'm not saying we're dealing mm. with a family like that on a daily basis, but it's happening across the town and it's happening across the country. But on top of that, Michael, we also deal with people who, who have a home but just can't make ends meet. And quite often these people are working. So we have regular people who once one week in every month they just can't make ends meet. They, they have a choice between their electricity bill and their, or their rent or their mortgage mm. or, or going and doing this week's I take it a lot of those people figure in uh, that figure that I, I read out. It's an incredible amount of people who are getting food hampers off you on a weekly basis. 1,750 adults and children every week in a, a town with a population well, just, of about... Just, just, to be, just to be clear about that, Michael, so that's uh, 1,750 who've received a weekly hamper from us, but they may not necessarily get it weekly. As I say, some people come and they might get it once a month and things like that. Okay, but it's still a, a lot of people who are, figure, yeah. who are, are you know, coming to you. That, to be honest, Michael, I don't believe that we're meeting the need. And that's one of the reasons that we contacted the, the media, because we believe that there's a lot more people out there in dire straits. And we'd like them to contact us. Mm. Uh, and if we can help them, we'll help them as much as we can. But as well to become aware of how many people are and how many families are out there struggling. Because mm. I'm just aware that there's a lot of people who, who for reasons of pride and, and yeah. things like that, are not putting their hand out when there is some help there and you're based on Park Street in the town and uh, you provide food hampers if people want it but you've provided an awful lot of, of different things toiletries uh, childcare products back to school items uh, yep. you, you got 42 beds for, people's, uh, for people for uh, people suites of furniture 15 kitchen white goods 6 dining room tables and chairs uh, and uh, you cleaned out uh, and refurbished 5 different homes uh, I, I see from the note that you sent in to us yeah yeah, yeah. so what we would have we would have uh, social workers, schools, different agencies, state agencies, and also voluntary agencies that would contact us. So with the home cleans, for instance, that's older people who maybe maybe were neglected to a degree and they ended up in hospital. When social workers become involved in their cases, they find that their homes are dilapidated, mm. that they couldn't send them back to them, their furniture is falling apart, covered in mould, mm. things like that. So we would get contacted by social workers and be asked to go in and see, can we replace the furniture? Can we... Co- can can we work with other local local charities uh, uh, who would maybe go in and paint up the house? Very good. Yeah. The and when, when you say we, Finbar, tell us a, a bit more <laughs> about who you are. How many people are involved? Uh, including the trustees, uh, I think at the moment we have 12. So some people drop off and some people come on as in volunteers and trustees. Right. Um, who work, work really, really hard. I, I, the, the, the main player there, I have to say, is our day-to-day operations manager, Sonia Van Calkering, who basically does it for almost seven days a week with no pay because everybody's voluntary. But we, ha- we have applied for funding to try to get a wage for, for Sonia. Please, God, we'll get that. But these are people who give, give their time. Some of the people access their services themselves mm. in the past. And you're obviously relying on the generosity of people in Dundalk as well. 
Exactly, and that's something that we really would like to thank everybody for, the, the people and the businesses in Dundalk who, for instance, a lot of those beds, those suites, those kitchen white goods were actually came from other people's homes who were replacing. So we would do a lot of exchange work where people would give us items and then people who need those items, we'd get them to them. Okay. It's Save Our Homeless Dundalk. You're based on Park Street in uh, the town uh, and uh, people can call in and see you donate or, or avail of your services. Yeah, and also we're on Facebook as well if you want to communicate that way. We operate a strict GDPR policy so your business is your business. It won't okay. go any further. And we won't ask for more. Yeah. And one last thing, Michael, yeah, if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah. We'd like to thank Loud County Council's firefighters who on the 17th of June uh, next week essentially are climbing 58,070 steps up and down the Cran Plaza I don't know how many times for a number of different charities in Dundalk, including ourselves and so sad and various charities and they're doing that from 10am to 2.30pm and it's the equivalent of climbing Mount Everest so we'd like to get a big shout out to those guys and if the public can give any support they can on the 17th of June the entire time would appreciate it Okay well well done to the firefighters well done to you and uh, the 12 or so people working with uh, Save Our Homeless Dundalk you said uh, Facebook is it Save Our Homeless Dundalk on Facebook Finbar? It is indeed, my Okay, yeah. that's great. Uh, and uh, you're on Park Street, as we say. Thank you indeed for telling us a little bit about the work uh, that you and your colleagues are doing and indeed for joining us on uh, the programme today. Finbar Markey is Director of Services with Save Our Homeless Dundalk. Call Michael now. 041983 M.ie The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Is it possible to change someone's sexual orientation? I suppose that's a a little bit like asking if being gay is all in your mind. Is it possible to change someone's gender identity or gender expression, as the case may be? Well, conversion therapy claims to be able to do all of that. Uh, It's something that is of huge concern. Uh, It is going to be outlawed in uh, this country. At least that's uh, the plan uh, that uh, the Minister for Equality, Roderick O'Gorman, has draft legislation uh, which he's working on. But Fianna Fáil Senators Malcolm Byrne and Fiona Fiona O'Loughlin want this to happen quicker. Let's uh, speak uh, to Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You say that researchers in TCD have been looking at this practice in this country and it does take place in Ireland. Uh, Good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Uh, Yes, conversion therapy is, uh, it's it's a pseudoscience, It's, it's quack science where some people claim that somebody who may say that, you know, says that they think that they're gay, that these people believe that scientifically they can change their their, their sexual orientation or identity. Uh, and all of the evidence from all of the scientists shows that, that this is not the case. This can't be done. But some of the practices, they're actually quite harmful to the individual um, by trying to convince them uh, that, uh, that this is possible. Uh, so, Fianna Fáil, as part of uh, going into the programme for government, we wanted to see this practice uh, outlawed. It's not that common in Ireland. Uh, it has happened in the past, and certainly there's some instances in the north. Um, but just because it isn't that common, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't guard against it. Uh, 
Mm. So we sought for to be included in the programme for government. Minister Roderick O'Gorman was certainly keen uh, to look at progressing it. He requested um, a team from Trinity with a number of social science and psychology backgrounds uh, to look at this issue, and they certainly support uh, a ban on this on this practice um, happening in Ireland. Uh, so there is legislation being prepared. We think it's important uh, to protect those who, you know, if they, they may be questioning their sexuality, but where, and, and this is particularly the case in the United States and other areas, yeah. where families force young people to undergo some of these practices, yeah. believing that they can change uh, somebody's sexual orientation. Whereas I think we, we, yeah. we all tend to know that, you know, if somebody is gay, they, they are gay. Yeah, and I was going to ask you just that. Uh, I presume that people don't volunteer for these services, if you like, themselves, uh, that are brought there by their parents quite often. That that that, mm. that tends to be the evidence. Um, it's often for for religious reasons mm. um, that people are forced uh, to undergo some of these practices. Mm. Uh, but but, but know, straight, away, a, straight away, straight um, away, there's a, a message to that person. They're weirdos. They're freaks. I mean, that can be the only conclusion uh, that there's something wrong in your mind that can be changed to normalise you. It is, and, and this is the problem. It's the potential psychological harm um, that this has done, and. Uh, the evidence shows that you know this is not the case, um, uh, and look, as I said, it, it's we're very fortunate in Ireland. It's not a widespread practice. Uh, there, there have been some instances. Um, it is more common in in other countries, um, but uh, it's it's like anything else. You know, if there is a risk of this happening um, to one young person, I think it is important. Uh, that we stand up um, for uh, for those young people and, and provide them with the support as they as they undergo their own journey of discovery, determining you know uh, what their sexual orientation uh, happens to be. We've gone we've come a, a hell of a long way in this country. Uh, we're a lot more tolerant um, as a society, although we're we're certainly not perfect. And I mean, we we would have seen instances recently at a, a school in County Meath, as you know, um, where. You know, there there are issues still around certain attitudes um, in society, hmm. um, but I think in, in that, all that, schools, uh, if uh, they belong to survey, is uh, to believe most uh, children, um, gay children, um, don't feel safe in school. I think it was seventy percent or thereabouts. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that would certainly be concerned, but I, I I do have to say, you know, for the overwhelming majority of schools, they they are keen to support a positive environment for all of their students. Mm. Um, teachers really do care about their their students, and you know, being a teenager is is difficult. Uh, I think we can all recall, you know, the various difficulties we would have faced during our teenage years, and particularly if you're identifying as gay. It's something that can be uh, it can be a challenge. Mm. Um, so look, if, if but, th- but does this say something uh, about psychological services I- in this country? Why is it not automatically banned? How can somebody set themselves up as a, a quack uh, to um, sell this sort of, of nonsense? Uh, you called it pseudo scientific practice, uh, but it is just utter nonsense uh, to think well, that no. you could change somebody's. Uh, self, uh, their, 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 their uh, identity of themselves. Uh, the well, no, no professional, I mean, no mm. professional would offer those sorts of mm. services. Uh, you know, and and psychologists uh, and those who work with children will speak out regularly against mm. any of that uh, type of, of, of quack science. Mm. Um, but but does it say something about you know, regulation of psychological services in this country? Because anybody can set themselves up as a psychologist yeah, that, that, apart yeah, from this that, sort of stuff. That's part of the, that's mm. part of the, the, the challenge as well. Mm. Um, 
And, you know, if, if anybody is ever availing of, you know, psychological or mental health services, and there's some great providers in this country, as we know, uh, just make sure um, that the people have the valid qualifications um, um, that they say. Um, but look, unfortunately, you know, there are, and, and this is, is true about history, there are always people who are out there who can claim without any form of qualification that they will be able to cure something. And uh, and sadly, it's the damage that they may cause um, to the individual as a result of, of, of what they do that we have to be concerned about. Uh, so so I'm, I'm certainly hoping, you know, the, the, uh, the legislation is being prepared that we will move on it as quickly and... While it isn't uh, a widespread practice in, in the South, there is certainly some evidence of it happening in the North, um, but that, uh, mm. that we do seek to ensure that, uh, that it's banned and anyone engaging in these practices will face consequences. Uh, and when parents take their children, uh, as undoubtedly is the case at times, whether it's here or in America, to conversion therapy for religious reasons, is it to stop them, do you think, from being inherently evil? Well, I, I, I can't obviously speak for, uh, you know, why mm. parents might, might... I suppose I'm asking about the Church's like teachings, really, and then you know, roundabout um, way. Yeah. yeah, but I, yeah. I, I think, mm. you know, if, if you look at, an, and again, you know, it, it depends on the Church, but even if you look at uh, recent statements by Pope Francis in the Catholic Church, you know, the obligations for Catholics are to to love their neighbour and, uh, you know, he's acknowledged that those who identify as gay or lesbian have been treated badly by the Catholic Church in the past uh, and that, you know, he has he has asked um, that there would be understanding and love shown uh, towards uh, your gay or lesbian neighbour. Uh, so I, I certainly think in the case of the Catholic Church but indeed other churches, mm. you know, views have moved um, in in that space, um, there are certainly still, and this is quite true in the US, some of the more, shall we say, extreme evangelical churches uh, that uh, t- uh, you know still seem to condone these practices. Um, and you know, fundamentally, it, it comes back to that very simple message of Jesus for those who are Christians: is love thy neighbour, yeah. and and that is about love and tolerance and compassion. Okay, if. Uh, all all uh, psychological service providers had to be licensed. Would uh, that combat this thing automatically? Well, one one would hope so, um, but there is always the danger that you will have, you know, a rogue practitioner who will uh, feel that, um, yeah, they can, you know, they can engage in, in mm. this type of practice. Um, certainly, you know, as I said, it's it's not widespread here in Ireland, and we should sure. be thankful for yeah. that. Um, but that doesn't mean, like anything else, that we can uh, we can rest on our laurels. Okay. Um, it's a it's a deeply harmful practice um, for the individuals. It can cause lasting damage, uh, and we do need to see it banned. Yeah, well, it's a sanctimonious, uh, judgmental, evil practice. I, I would think, uh, and uh, I think everybody uh, who has any ounce of decency and decency and them would agree that it has to be banned. Thank you indeed for joining us. We've run out of time, but thank you, Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne. That's our program for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next program tomorrow morning at nine a.m. on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.